This episode of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands was recorded and edited on the land of the Darawal people. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hi there, it's David James Young here. You're listening to All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. If you know anything about me personally, like if you listen to Hottest 100s and Thousands or you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you might probably know how much the following sentence will mean to me. Uh, but today's guest is Ben Lee. Ben is someone that I have been listening to since I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, his album Breathing Tornadoes was the second album I ever bought uh, behind Neon Ballroom. And yeah, he's just been a fundamental part of my life as a music fan and particularly as an Australian music fan. I've seen him live multiple times. Uh, I've interviewed him in the past over the phone, uh, but this was my first time talking to him in real life face to face and... It was kind of intimidating, but also really, really exciting. We recorded this back in May uh, before his show at Wollongong Unibar with friend of the show, Caitlin Harnett. It was a really lovely night, and I'm really glad that we got to do this and that Ben let me pick his brain for just about an hour or so about everything that I'd ever really wanted to know but didn't fit into the the throes of a promotional uh, phoner if that makes sense. So, everything that I'd always wanted to ask about in terms of Noise Addict and the bends, and of course, Breathing Tornadoes, that all kind of comes up in this episode. I really want to thank Ben for his time, and as always, I want to thank you for your support and for listening to what I do. Uh, it means the world, and I really, really appreciate it. All right, with that said, and again, I can't believe I'm about to say this, let's cross now to my chat with my friend, Ben Lee. everyone, I'm David James Young, and all my friends are in bar bands today. I would like to introduce you to my friend, Ben Lee. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing really good. You know, it's been a busy time in general, but I'm just, you know, after last year, I'm just so grateful to be able to work a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, you got here like December. Yeah, beginning of December. Brought right. the family out. We were sort of planning it from about April or May, but it... I didn't, you know, because we'd never been in this situation before. Yeah. We, we'd never, like, my littlest one didn't even have a passport. Mm. Um, my wife and stepdaughter didn't have visa. Because previously, it's like, if you were a citizen, you just drag everyone back with you and it'd be fine. Yeah. But so, we had to get through a lot of these, like, hoops and hurdles, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. What can you remember about that first show you've played back? Was it the New Year's Eve one out at the... Yeah, well, that was... I mean, I'm hesitant to call that a show. It was more like a TV taping. Sure. Because there was no audience. You know, there was a backing band that they had together. Previous guest of the show, Dave Jenkins Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was awesome. Um, It was just surreal to be around people. That was a couple weeks after we got out of quarantine. Yeah, yeah. Just to be playing music and be having a beer at the opera house. And I mean, it was just bizarre. So, was the first show in front of people the Sunset Piazza show? Yeah, that was the first gig. Yeah. yeah. And that's the first with this uh, new format that you've been talking yeah. with. Well, I'm going to put a band together later in the year when the record comes out. I just, um, I think playing solo, you know, as I'm doing these these shows now with I've got this cassette player and some cassettes mm-hmm. and Tony Buchan made these great, like, beats for, my, for some of my songs. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. I think as a solo artist, people can almost become numb 
to watch it. They see someone get up with just a guitar. Yeah. And it's so, like they make uh, a lot of again. assumptions yeah, about yeah, what yeah. it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with acoustic guitar, right? Yeah, yeah. So anything you can do to break that up. And I was like, it was actually my friend Justin Stanley's idea. He was like, you should come out like David Byrne with a boombox. And I was like, oh, I love that idea. But then I got a boombox. But what was interesting was boomboxes all play at slightly different speeds. Mm. They're not great, like, professional level. So, so yeah, I, yeah. So, and with cassette, when they played slightly slow, they changed the tone if there was backing tracks yeah. with tone in it. So, so I had to get a piece of stereo equipment, yeah. cassette player. Like, you know. <laughs> I can imagine boomboxes are not allowed in the house. She's just like, no fucking way. Oh, I'm not like, like saying anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it's no, sitting. I've seen too many of those in my life. No, they're sitting there now. We just use it as like it's like a speaker. That yeah, yeah. Plug the phone into. Yeah. So yeah, this is your first time back in Wollongong in quite some time. But the first time I saw you was actually about twenty minutes down the road. It was end of two thousand and five. It was the Yalla Roadhouse. Do you remember oh, that venue? Oh yeah. Yeah, this tiny, like, weird little rural venue. Y-A-L-L-A. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you were playing with uh, then a young and up-and-coming band long before they'd had any Triple J hits, Sparkadia. Yeah, so that was... um. Yeah, that's right. I remember that, Sparkadia. Yeah. He's like really a, good. He, he's... um. Yeah, Xander's fucking killing it now. Yeah, like, he's like he's a, a pop songwriter. songwriter. Yeah, 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 yeah. He works for a previous guest of the show, Thelma Plum, and a bunch of other people. Cool. Yeah, I was talking to Jake Stone about him recently. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, saying, yeah. He He just said... He's just got that incredible, just pop yeah. sensibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just a phenomenal songwriter. Mm. And that was kind of at the tail end of, you know, what ended up being like one of the biggest years of your career. So I can imagine kind of it would have been weird to end it with these like weird, like regional shows peppered in between home bake. Well, that's sort of the, the interesting thing about when you, you know, get opportunity you get to push into new territories and it's almost like when you start out, it's like you can play Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then it's like you add Brisbane and then you do that trip down to Canberra and then Adelaide and Perth. And and before, you you know, touring can become... The the bigger your audience gets, you can actually spend more time doing regional stuff and all that, which for me was a trip. Like, until I, I remember doing a tour with Pete Murray, like a regional Queensland tour. Yeah, right. And places I would never have been able to play by myself. Were you um, opening or? Yeah, I was opening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's really big in that with that audience, yeah. you know. And, um, That's a humbling experience, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, just getting a sense of like how many places there are to play in Australia. Sure, if you yeah. really like, kind of like if your music like touches the heartland, you know. Yeah, so. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music, specifically where it changed from being something that you were watching on TV, listening to on the radio, etc., to switching over to being, this is what I want to do. I want to sing. I want to play instruments. I want to be in a band, all that sort of stuff. Can you tell me how music factored into your childhood and your upbringing and if there was like a particular switch on moment for you? Well, it's funny because my fandom of music had a lot to do with like watching rage and video hits in the of morning. Course. Like yeah, Saturday, yeah, yeah. Sunday Same mornings yeah, yeah, yeah. with a boombox in front of the TV. To tape it? Recording the songs I like. <laughs> yeah, off the speaker of the TV. Off the speaker of the TV. <laughs> and then um, going and like notating the lyrics, like trying to make oh, them true. up and write them down and then like singing along with them. And so for me, like being a fan of music and being a participant mm. always went hand in hand. I yeah. never, I mean, that's just my personality though. I never, if I get into something, I want to like participate. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. It's like that, that Jarvis Cocker line, you can't be a spectator. Uh, yes. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I just, they go, they went hand in hand. Yeah, know? totally. Yeah. You grew up in Bondi? Yeah, North Bondi, like yeah. right at the golf course there where like the border of like North Bondi, Dover Heights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So pretty like immediate access to, to music. You know, you can just kind of hop on a train or a bus or whatever and you ride into the city where all the sh- gigs and shit are. Yeah, once I was going to like Waterfront and Half a Cow and Red Eye and Phantom. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It yeah. was very much like Silver Rocket and then going to those other places, I forget their names, like... Well, there was Goulds on King Street, but there was another one in the city, like a big secondhand books and record place. And just like that, would they were sort of my weekends, like going yeah. record shopping and hunting for stuff and fanzines and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I usually ask like what the first time someone performed live was. I, I remember a story about you playing 
a backyard party for your dad? Yeah, was, was that it, your first gig? No, it wasn't a backyard party. It was my dad was on Waverly Council. He was right. a, He was an yeah, alderman. Yeah, yeah. So Waverly Library was having a fundraiser, and they were doing a. Um, Secondhand book sale and sausage sizzle. Ooh. And my dad, we didn't have a gig, our band. We never played a gig. And he was like, do you want me to see if I can get you a gig, like playing at the sausage sizzle? Yeah. And I was like, yes. And <laughs> you know me, I just like took it really seriously. We made flyers, got all our friends to come. And we'd already made a demo and sent it out to labels. So yeah. We had some interest from the guys at Waterfront, Stephen Savrakis and Pav. Those, yeah, yeah. They were starting a label. So I invited them to the show and Pav came to the show and that was when he like invited us to sort of, you know, open for Sonic Youth. And yeah. So it was just this weird, what an inauspicious start, but, yeah. but it was perfect. <laughs> what do you remember about that show? Um, I remember we, op- we played with this other band that were like a... Also sort of like an Eastern Suburbs like band. Um, mm. They were called Driving Sideways. Right. And the singer was really good looking. Like he had, they had long hair in the band and like- Right, yeah. And we were all like just little, we just all had short hair. Yeah. I, I thought they were so cool. Like they had songs about smoking weed and Hell like they yeah. just seemed so tough. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I remember like wanting to impress them, but also right. knowing like- they wouldn't like us yeah. and feeling competitive with them. And I remember our friends sitting down, leaning against a wall, watching the gig and just that feeling of like, hey, like in the very beginning, it's like even if the audience is giving nothing, you give yeah. 100% because you've like been dying to do it. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. So this is this is Noise Addict. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your first band? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 So, you were you like just like playing alone in your bedroom growing up, like like just on guitar, like. Yeah, I mean, I wanted a band. It, it's quite hard at that. I mean, I was fourteen. I'd been yeah. trying to have bands since I was like nine or ten. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like people didn't take it that seriously. Yeah. You know, like so I'd get people to join a band, and they, everyone wanted to like design the logo. Yeah. And like. Or come up with a name. And yeah. look cool. Yeah, yeah. Coming up with names. That was so And fantasize about what you'd do with groupies. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah. man, I'm just going to like, you know, these little like. Yeah. <laughs> as they called us, baldies. You yeah. Know? That was like the phrase. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of like, but then it was really like seeing Nirvana and the hard-ons and, you know, a lot of bands like around that first big day out in like 91, oh, yeah. 92. Were you at the Phoenician Club? No, I saw Nirvana at the Big Day Out. Oh, so yeah. wow. And yeah. Violent Femmes and all those bands, like Mass Appeal, the Hellman, yeah, and the Hard-Ons. It was like th- those bands, it just made it crystal clear. And I think like the Welcome Mat, maybe Smudge played. Like, of course, Bands yeah. that I really came to love. And it just made it so obvious that like it was sort of not a big deal. Like right. you actually just had to like bang out a song. And songs, right. like I was listening to the songs, I was like, oh, they're sort of just like- Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, solo, double chorus, end. Like, yeah. I was like, oh, there's a structure. It's like not that complicated. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. You yeah. Just get together and you play it and you turn it up loud and you do it. And mm. it was almost like that, all those bands that I saw in the beginning, even though obviously it's actually more complicated than that and those bands were all really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they still <laughs> conveyed this idea that like the simplicity of punk rock, like the yeah. DIY thing. And I just like got it. And then the next day I was just like, let's do it. Let's like start a band. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like you said, Noise Addict got kind of thrown in the deep end pretty quickly. <laughs> like how are you kind of processing that at that age? My personal desperation to sort of do, even at that age, like 13, 14, yeah. to do something with my life that mm. was different to what, my friends were doing and what my family wanted and yeah. you know, that all just the middle class sort of like aspirations mm. that was so strong for me that it's like there was a survival mechanism of like wanting it to happen. Yeah. So I wasn't thinking of it in terms of like, Hey, this is so exciting. I was like, yeah, I'm seeing an escape route. Right. If, I, if this works, I can, I can, it's like, it's something that happens for people that really... It's like hunger, you know? Like, I remember seeing that Bruce Springsteen show. Uh, his, oh, on Broadway? Yeah, I didn't see it, but I saw the video. You know, oh, on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that moment where he said he played at his neighbor's thing and he people clapped and he said, and I smelt blood. Mm. It's that thing of, like, when you first perform, you're just like, okay, I can go in for the kill. I can do yeah. this. I can affect a room. I can change my life. That that Those are real feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you remember about the first time the band went out on tour? 
I'd say the first time you went to tour was like going down to Melbourne and doing like three shows. I think we did um like with Magic Dirt. Oh wow! We nice opened one. up for Magic Dirt for like three shows, like two shows at like the Barwin Club or mm. some, something like that. And it, uh, I just remember like a lot of it at that point was just like. It was really stressful. Like, I was actually yeah. really stressed. Right. Because I just, like, wanted it to be good. Yeah. I'd basically, like, dragged my friends that mm. would never have wanted to be in a band, just through my sheer willpower, mm. into being in a band with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I was, like, my destiny was wrapped up in their, like, sort of half-assed attitude to right. doing this yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found it incredibly stressful. It was... um. I wanted it so badly. Yeah. And for them, it was like gravy. You know, yeah. they were just like, wow, how cool. So <laughs> I just found it really, it was stressful. And it's been interesting because as my pr- careers progressed and my experience of playing with not just better and better musicians, but mm. also people that take it more and more seriously. Right. Like the kinds of people I like to work with are like super talented people. It doesn't yeah, have to be sure. like, it doesn't have to be technically, but people that are like hardcore, you know, like I like to yeah, work sure. with like brilliant people. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. as that's come more and more into my life, I've been able to relax more and more because you realize like you're playing with like equals. You're playing mm. with people that take it as seriously as you do, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. So, at what point did you kind of realize that things had kind of run their course? Because, you know, it was kind of, your band, like, obviously kind of burnt out pretty quick. It was only a couple of years until, you know, things disintegrated and you went on to the solo thing. Well, it sort of happened on its own in that, you know, I used to make Pav these tapes. Yeah. So I had this boombox at home and I just like, and I was really writing like a song a day. Yeah, like, basically, right. I'd come home from school, write a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, pretty much every week or two, I'd give him a cassette with like, 10 or 15 new songs on it. Jesus. Acoustic songs. I just yeah, drop yeah. them down his house in Bondi. And he, when the Beastie Boys were out, he gave one to Mike D and then Mike was listening to it. And I think Liz Fair's first record had just come out. And Mike was like, we said to Pav, hey, we should get Ben, see if he wants to go make a record with Brad Wood, who did the Liz Fair record. It would really yeah. suit these songs. And that became Grandpa Wood. But I had not considered it. Like I... Because you got to remember, like, in the early 90s, there weren't really any solo artists in cool music. Yeah, yeah. It was, like, until within a few years, it was, like, there was, like, yeah, like, Liz Fair, Beck, Elliot Smith. A little later, there was Bright Eyes. Yeah. But it was really, like, a handful of us that were, like, playing under our names. Right, It was yeah, not yeah, yeah. the thing to do. It was pretty yeah. uncool. It was almost, like... Solo artists were more like Michael Bolton. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? It was like seen as like a like very adults kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or like or like a Kenny Loggins, like John Farnham, or you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so basically, when they brought that idea, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I always like because I loved writing acoustic songs. Mm. I always sort of, but I thought it was just going to be noise addict. Um, and then it just, I was like, oh, okay. So this is like a separate thing, and. I'm really grateful to Mike D because I think that was like his idea basically. Yeah. And he didn't view it as a like, oh, the band has to end or anything like that. It was just like, hey, you do projects, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he just opened me up to that. Do you remember the last Noise Attic show? Yeah, it was at Bondi Pavilion. Yes, yeah, sick. Smudge and Girling opened. Whoa, what a lineup. Yeah, it was cool. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, you, you were just with um, Darren Cross the other day, Yeah, right? last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how was that? It was awesome, man. It's like people like that that, I mean, there's been like years I haven't communicated with Crossy. Yeah, yeah, And then yeah. other times where it's like we've toured together and then he's yeah. like, we hung out in New York and we've like, we've had- a lot of experiences together and mm. but more than together it's like you witness your peers on their journey yeah and creatively you watch their transformations and what they struggle with and their aesthetics that come in and that they want to like yeah. deal with and envision and materialize and it's a very deep like uh almost like a uh, it's not the right word fraternity because it's mm. like m- men and women but yeah. it's like that feeling of like your peers they're like it's sure. almost like your high school class yeah 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 that you like you've been through a lot together and you always have a love and respect for what your peers are doing with their life and their creativity do i remember right that you were briefly in girling yeah for like uh 
I think it was just one gig. It was at the big day out. Um, Brad had left and right. I think like Burke hadn't joined yet. Right, right, But it was right. so funny because I can only be a front man. Right. Yeah. I just like, so I just remember like I was really comfortable on stage and I was doing all the talking and I was like, I was in the band for one gig. Yeah. It was a big day out. <laughs> like Crossy should have been like, the front man. Yeah, the totally. Front man. Yeah. It was like, but I was just like, we're girling. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Fuck yeah. It's like totally natural for me. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> oh, that's so, so good. All right. Do you remember the first time you played as quote unquote Ben Lee? Yeah, I think it was like at a spunk, um, you know, spunk label. Yeah, yeah. Aaron lives not too far from here. Yeah. So yeah. Aaron did a gig at the North Bondi, like the diggers or something the right, like rsl yeah. I, I think that was the first solo show wow so that would have been like 95 yeah something like that yeah 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 was that like like you said you would you'd kind of just settled into like this niche as a performer but you know that had been under the presence of like other people on stage like how did that change when it was just you up there well i still got other people to play like Adam Yee was playing bass. Yeah. Um, my friend Julie Bennett was playing drums. Like, I, I was still, like... Because, the like, Grandpa Wood still had, like, a band on a lot of songs. And, like, yeah. the, the bigger songs from it, like Pop Queen, Away With The Pixies and stuff, all had drums and stuff. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sort of viewed it as... It was just, like, I was playing acoustic guitar. But mm. it was still kind of, like, a, a band, I guess, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing that would have come a little bit later on in the piece then that you start literally playing solo. Well, that I got really interested in that after like getting into like Loudon Wainwright and Bob Dylan and people yeah. like when I was like 16, 17 and then I made something to remember me by which was like a totally acoustic album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, in some ways that was a really interesting moment. It was really um it was like so creatively unformed because I was it's almost like my aspirations were to be a 60-year-old singer-songwriter. Right, yeah. And I was 18. Yeah. And that is, like, I have that thing with my career. It's like when people go, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Yeah. Like, I could envision something, but I wasn't able to, even in my emotional life, I wasn't able to carry that forward and be it yet. Yeah, So sure. I was, like, playing a role almost that was, like, it's almost like now I can carry the themes of those types of songs mm. because I'm like an adult man who has like lived and lost and loved and yeah. succeeded and failed. And you yeah. have to do that to be like a folky singer songwriter. Yeah. You have to be wounded in real ways yeah. so that the audience can believe you. Yeah. Otherwise, you know it, otherwise it's literally performative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was very much around them, but that was, but, but the bigger thing was than any of the, the album or the song quality or the lyrics or whatever was that, I got really interested in commanding a room by mm. myself. And that's what that was about for me. Yeah. Um, and that I learned to do in that period really well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you'd moved to New York at this point as well. I made that record in LA. I was sort of like on the verge of moving to New York. I was like in LA. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and I guess that kind of ties in as well to those, those big aspirations that you were talking about, you know? Yeah, it was. I finished my HSC and I was like, everyone was going to uni. I was like, I'm going to go hang out. And I've got... Also, at that point, before Cigarettes Will Kill You, I'm Breathing Tornadoes, like... I, my audience in Australia was like pretty small. So mm. I had like, I'd sell like a thousand copies of an album. Yeah. That were at the most, yeah. you know? And in America, I was selling like 35,000, like, which mm. in Australia would be gold. Yeah. But in America, that was actually pretty comparable. Yeah. yeah like yeah. for the size of the population, that was yeah, about yeah, the same. Yeah. But in America, you can eke out a career selling that. That's indie rock, you mm. know? So, so it's sort of, I was able to, I was like, I'm going to go. There's shows to play. There's people who care. So I'm just, I did it. Did you notice, like, when you first made that move, like, did you kind of notice a, a difference between audiences? Like, I guess a homegrown audience who had kind of come to know you over the last couple of years as opposed to an audience that was basically coming at you from scratch. A lot of people coming to see you might have only just like, oh, that's the guy who got signed by the Beastie Boys. It was just like, have no other context for you. I barely noticed there was an audience in front of me at shows until I was like 25 <laughs> because right. I was so involved in my yeah, own yeah, yeah. experience. And I think that's pretty common for artists. It's like, if you would ask me who were my audience at various points in my career, I like... I sort of don't know. Like, I, mm. you know, you vaguely remember certain faces that show up or there's more people in the room or less people in the room. But it was very, like, 
my own experience of like what it was like for me to sing songs. Like that's yeah. what shows were like, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We now come to the Breathing Tornadoes record. Yeah. This is the second album I ever bought. Oh, cool. <laughs> like, this is a, like, like fundamentally, like, a very, very important record for me and a lot of people I know. Like, this is one of my favorite records of all time. So, like, I'm, I'm very curious about, like, I guess, what changed for you at this point in your career? Because, you know, like, you went from doing this completely acoustic record to a very maximalist record with so many different sounds and ideas on it. You know, the samples, the beats, you know, like, you know, like Sean Lennon's on this record. Like, there's so many different moving parts on this record. And again, that kind of ties into that ambition that you were talking about. And that's home to some songs that, you know, you still play to this day that are still such a huge part of what you do when you were touring a lot around this time as well. Like, what do, you, what do you remember about this kind of period in your life? Well, the thing about the aesthetic of the record, it, in a lot of ways it was defined by what I didn't want it to be. Right. Um, I knew that guitar music was sort of seeming boring to me. Right. Like, what was exciting me was like Bjork. You know, like, I don't know, like Aphex Twin. Like, there was like... True, There was yeah. like electronic music and... It all just seemed like more interesting, yeah. Um, and so I, I somehow wanted to like, I didn't want to have any electric guitars on it, mm-hmm. but I wanted it to feel like up. You know, I wanted yeah. to sound like big. Um, I wanted it to be ambitious. I was like interested in um, it being sort of stylish, I guess. You know, yeah. but I think a lot of the aesthetic was defined by Ed Buller too, who was like. He came from this British world in which, like, he was sort of the first person to turn me on to, like, the idea of, like, embracing being a pop star. Right, as opposed yeah. to, like, being a rock star. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, rock yeah, stars, yeah. I just liked rock stars growing up. Of course, yeah. Because um, they were, like, dangerous and everything. And whereas pop stars were, like, something, like, your mum would like too. Yeah. And, <laughs> and teenagers. And right, yeah. And on the radio and, you know, like, Beyonce is a great pop star. Mm-hmm. Taylor Swift's a great pop star. You know, they're not rock stars. Ed yeah. Sheeran's a great pop star. Sure. And, and I think he just sort of, like, opened me up to the ideas of, like, unashamedly liking the poppier aspects of, like, what could make a song work. Right. You know, and yeah. um, and he, you know, that was, like, He'd just gotten Pro Tools. We were, like, losing sessions left, right, and center. Oh, my God. We, the system would crash all the time. It was like, was I was the first person I knew who'd done an album at home on Pro Tools. It was right, like, yeah. it was not a done thing. Like, you had, some people had, like, you'd have four tracks and eight tracks, but otherwise you'd go into a studio and, you know. So, yeah, it was just sort of, like, thinking big and... Uh, thinking much more emotionally rather than aesthetically. Right. And I happened to work with someone who had a strong aesthetic. And I knew also, like, I had certain things, like, sonically, like, I wanted, like, really bright top end and really, like, warm low bottom end and, like, nothing in the middle. Right. Um, Because I think that's because, like, Bjork's records were like that. Sure. There was no murkiness to them. They were, like, super, like, the strings would cut through and then they'd be like... Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And some yeah. kind of things. But there'd be nothing filling up the space. So that uh, that formed Breathing Tornadoes a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you playing with Sally Seltman at this point? I mean, me and Sally were friends from when she was in Lustre 4 from Noise Yeah, yeah, yeah. She only played in like a band that I did like, I think once on, yeah. in Japan. On yeah, some, uh, that's what I was That's what I was. Oh, thinking. yeah, maybe that was on. Because she posted a photo on Insta like yeah. a few months back from a tour that you guys But were I think on. that might have been on Something to Remember Me By. Yeah, right, right, right. So just kind of in that yeah, because, in Because actually on Breathing Tornadoes, Lara who is, Lara and Sally were in the same band. Then Lara moved to New York and started playing in my band like full time. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, obviously that's that's kicking off in the in the US and at home starts the precocious little cunt era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was also because that was part of it too. So I was thinking like super like, like it was like very conceptual everything. And I loved yeah. like Andy Kaufman and I loved just like the idea that that things could be interesting that provoked you. Yeah. Even if they were uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, And, like, yeah. I was friends with Harmony Korean. Like, I was, like, hanging out with people that were interested in, like, mm. pushing people's buttons. Yeah. And so I just had this whole thing in my head that, like, you know, in Australia, like, people didn't seem that interested in my music. And in America, they did. Mm. And I was like, 
I'm just going to tell everyone I'm Australia's greatest songwriter. Like, as Andy Kaufman did that, he was like, yeah. I'm from Hollywood. I'm the greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. it was patently absurd. Yeah. I think the issue was that I was actually a better songwriter than Andy Kaufman was a wrestler. This is true. So, like, <laughs> if, if you are obviously not good at something, yeah. then it's really funny to talk up yourself as the greatest of all time. Yeah. If you're pretty decent at it yeah. and you talk yourself up, it just comes across as arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they've never let you forget it, have they? <laughs> yeah. but, but you know what's interesting? It's like a lot of the things I've done in my career and in my life mm. that have seemed to be like, quote unquote, difficult or like yeah. push people away or be like non-cooperative yeah. are actually the things in the long term that have earned me the um, artistic and just cultural capital to do whatever I want. Yeah. Like I always think of it in terms of like that idea of like when you go into prison, like go in with a black eye. Yeah. Because like no one fucks with you. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. it's kind of like that. Like if you've done some dangerous shit, Mm-hmm. People stay out of your way. This is true. <laughs> and I think the idea that I played out such a self-destructive fantasy mm. in at that time of my life, it just made people sort of look at me a bit like, I'm just going to stay out of that guy's way. Let him do whatever he's doing. Yeah. And- for better or worse, like sometimes they were like, "No, come on, go get in my way. I need to. I need. I need help." But actually, in the long term, it's really good to. Try things, try these bold experiments yeah. and have an agenda and just go for it and mm. do it. And later you realize like you earn, you buy yourself freedom by by following your weird impulses. Well, speaking of experiments and trying new things, tell me about uh, doing the bends. So doing yeah. the tour and doing the uh, EP and, you know, not only playing your own stuff, but playing brand new music with with two other people, you know, cause that's a, that's a pretty ambitious project, you know, like well, it starts yeah. off as this novelty and then it's just like, Oh no, we, we're all, we're all actual songwriters. We should do something with this. Well, it was Folds' idea. Um, yeah. He'd been offered a tour. I think he'd actually been offered to open for Bob Dylan in Australia, but to him that felt a bit like he'd be playing to an older audience. Yeah. And he like Folds is actually always interested in pushing forwards too. And like yeah. connecting with new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In his own career. And, you know, me, there'd been this ongoing joke and he'd met Queller and me and him were friends. I'd done a mm. bunch of shows with him. And he was like, what if we did a tour, like the three bands? Yeah. And me and F- Queller liked it. And I said, why don't we make an EP to sell at the shows? Yeah. But that's just my, like, half a cow, like, Sydney indie rock thing. I was like, yeah, you yeah, make yeah. an EP to celebrate anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take three days, make an EP. Why you know? not? Yeah. Um, but to for, for those guys, that was a bit more like, whoa, we're actually doing that? Yeah. So we just did it. We knocked out four songs in four days or three days, whatever it was. And we really just did that tour. Um, but it, it it has attained a certain kind of like mythical status. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Audiences we- weirdly, it's kind of like when Nirvana played the Big Dad. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. if you were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. So, so Ben, ben Folds turned down playing with Bob Dylan to do this. Yeah, I think he just, Fuck. you know, it's That's like, incredible. Yeah, I think it just seemed more unexpected in a way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, you know, that was a kind of a cool experience uh, for all of you because, like, Queller's up there playing drums and you're up there playing bass, you know, like, you're getting to do stuff that you normally wouldn't get the chance to do. Like, what do you remember about those shows in particular? I loved it. I mean, it was great. Yeah. We all had, like, our girlfriends and wives with us and they all liked each other and it was, like, the six of us on this tour yeah. just having a blast. And it was, again, one of those things that, like, we were inventing the rules on what that was. Yeah. So there was no, uh, there was just no playbook. You know? Yeah. We just did it. We now we got to get Queller into quarantine and make it happen yeah, again. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got two thirds in Sydney already. Exactly. <laughs> Have you seen Ben Fultz since I he haven't, got back? Yeah. You know, like our lives. You were literally a week apart on the Sunset Piazza thing, yeah, which is crazy. Our lives kind of diverged, and you know, I think a lot of it is like. Timing is everything in music. Yeah. And it's you've got to be in the right headspace. Like collaboration, it's like all about where your head's at at that moment. And you yeah. connect. Yeah. And sometimes it's like very cosmic. It's like people orbit around and suddenly they connect. And- yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between the big hit of cigarettes and the big hit of Catch My Disease, you know, you have a bunch of, you know, like lesser known but still like kind of cult beloved yeah, projects like you know something like, like something blue well, well, well yes yeah, so, yeah, yeah you know the hey you yes you yeah. record uh, the rage and placid lake yeah, yeah, the yeah. benzie paid like you know when and 
like when you look back on that kind of period between like the late 90s and the mid 2000s where you have these two big peaks like was were you sensing a, a kind of burnout at that period because you you just kind of been going non-stop for like a decade at that point you know well you know it's funny because like People, you think about that like nonstop, and people say that like, "Oh, you've made so many albums, you've made mm. fifteen albums or whatever." But yeah, like in thirty years, sure, yeah. it's like actually not that many albums. <laughs> like, it's a lot because it's consistent, yeah, and they look like a lot as a body of work. But yeah. for someone doing a job, it's like Guided by Voices have made more records than me. Will yeah. Oldham's made more records than yeah. me. Like, it's like. If you're into it, you kind of write songs and you record them and put them out and play shows. So, no, and I never looked at it in terms of, like, burnout. I I look at it in terms of, like, I like to chase what inspires me and interests me at any given moment. Sure. When that big moment happens with The Awake is the new Sleep record, are you taken aback by that? Are you kind of surprised at the reaction that record gets? Because it's similarly ambitious to the Breathing Tornadoes record, but just in a very different path. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, any time I've focused my ambition, it has been reflected back by the performance of the album. Like, I can honestly say the albums I've been most ambitious about have had the best results, just commercially. I don't mean artistically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And what's interesting is actually the new record I've made, I actually have that again. Oh, true, So it'll be very interesting to see if that does connect. I don't have the expectation, Mm. but I have that same feeling of like, oh, I've just made the best thing I've made. At that point, you True, know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, so in a way it's not surprising when it happens because for it to happen, you have to have been strategizing and fantasizing about it happening a yeah. lot for it to happen. It yeah. doesn't happen by accident, you know? No, sure. So yeah. um so yeah, but it's always it's pretty mind blowing. I mean it's pretty fun. Look, put it this way, it's more fun when the phone's ringing than when it isn't. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the kind of curious thing. Like at this point, you know, like like there are kids in my grade who are just like, Oh, have you heard of this guy? And I'm just like, Yeah, I've been listening to him since primary school and just like there are all these people that, you know, that that's like their entry point for you that yeah. have no idea about anything you've done previously and for a lot of them you know don't really know about much you've done since you know no, it's, like, it's, it's really it's weird because like an I, epicenter yeah i meet a lot of people this is something i noticed from earlier in my career than that yeah was that i'm one of those artists probably because i've changed a lot people are very attached to certain periods yeah so, and for them that's the pure period right like people yeah. <laughs> bring a lot of idealization of whatever period they got into my music at sure so like I'll have people go oh you've got to go out and just do Grandpa Wood just that album or like oh wow or why not do a folk album again or like or the, uh, Breathing Tornadoes or, you know all these ones yeah. that like and so I've realized that part of the, your job as an artist is balancing like honoring that for people yeah. that like that's cool that's really cool that they like that but you can't personally feel bogged down in other people's idealization of a period in your life otherwise yeah. imagine if you did that in a normal job like if you were like a lawyer yeah and someone was like oh that case you did oh that my- case you did in 2005 <laughs> You'll never, you'll never fight another case like right, that. Yeah. You just be like, "That's the most depressing yeah. thing you'll ever say. You just can't think like unless that. it's like Roe v. Wade yeah, or something. Exactly. Then, yeah. exactly. <laughs> At this point, you've played kind of Awake is the New Sleep era. You're taking that everywhere. You know, like obviously you toured through North America, you toured through Australia. Are you, are you getting to kind of new continents at yeah, that, that point well, as well? That, because Catch My Disease did really well in Spain. True. It did really well in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got to New Zealand. So I got to like go p- to places and play that I and have you had, a, had a real audience. So it was pretty fun. Yeah. Like what do you remember about those shows? Well, I just remember it's just like weird when you sort of have a hit and that was a, in Australia it was a major hit. Everywhere mm. else it was like a minor hit. Right. Like it was, yeah, but yeah, it was yeah. a hit. And it's like pretty funny how fickle that audience is right. that comes on board with a hit that literally for that month, you are their favorite artist and you sell out the venue and you get this. And literally you go back the next year mm. and no one's interested. Yeah. In it. it's like, and that's why I think the game of like to truly just play the pop game, yeah. which a lot of people do, it is a brutal game oh, because man. you are- 
you live and die by the performance of your newest song. Yeah. And I just think I've never wanted to, like, I like to keep one foot in that world. Like when I have a song that's catchy enough and I want to, you know, they go like, okay, let's do it. Let's get to commercial radio. Let's like try and get a thing to happen. But, but I've never wanted to be an artist who lives and dies by that. Right. Were you kind of pursuing that on on the ripe record? Because like you know that's that's like kind of the big follow up point, you know? Because yeah. you're just like I can imagine the label just being like, oh well, fuck, you just had this massive moment, you know? Yeah. Let's see if we can do that again. I think what the, with ripe, I think that had I produced those songs differently, that record probably would have done better. Mm. I I actually like tried to follow advice with that record, which is like. It's the death of you as an artist. Like, yeah. anyone could take anyone's advice. Because Catch My Disease, like, almost was massive everywhere in the world. Right, like, yeah. it really was. It was yeah. like, it got played on all the stations that make songs massive. Mm. It just didn't get played quite enough. Right, like, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Big American pop stations and all that. And the message I got across the board was, if you had a little bit more conventional production... Mm that shit would have popped. That was basically the message I was getting. So really? I was like, yeah. It's like, let me get John Mayer's producer in here and let me get those. Pro- I'm going to write my songs. They're mm. going to be just as weird as my songs always are. And yeah. just like, and, but I actually think the production, it was so transparent that the goal was to be more conventional. Yeah. But I think my audience were just so like, eh, it sounds like everything else. Yeah. It doesn't sound like, why we love the guy because he doesn't sound like everyone yeah. else. Yeah. Know? So I think that yeah. was sort of the issue with it really. Yeah. But the songs, like a lot of the songs have held up really well. Like in terms mm. of my live showing catalog, yeah. like a lot of those songs of like a song, like is this how love's supposed to feel or blush or ripe? Those are like album tracks off that album, like tracks yeah. like four, seven and 11 or whatever. And sure. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're songs that are people's favorite songs and live they kill. So, I don't think the songs were the issue. I just think it was like I tried to play by other people's rules. Yeah. And that's not my strength. Yeah. When you're touring on on something like that, like is your heart still in it? When you've get to the end of making something like that and you kind of real you have that hindsight of just like, oh I could have done it. Well, I didn't have that hindsight at that point. Really? I, you I, you were all in at that point? Well, I I mean it, it sounded to me like a great adult pop record. Right. Which I like. Like I like mm. if you put on a Tom Petty record or like a you know a, like a Gordon Lightfoot album like yeah. I like those albums so yeah, yeah, yeah. it just doesn't suit me but but so I was in this sort of world and like you know had like pretty big budgets for the videos and all that but but I was also getting married and my wife was pregnant mm. and I was always in my mind I knew I was going to be a really hands-on dad yeah. so when the album didn't work I was like basically like ah oh, now I can just like raise my daughter and yeah. get make indie records and do whatever I want you yeah. know so it just sort of like it, it it sort of worked out in a weird way yeah I mean, yeah, because the ensuing decade is a very curious one. You know, you have some of your most kind of experiments like. There's some popular sort of stuff in there, like the Rebirth of Venus record, but you also have the Ayahuasca record, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and you have the Deeper Into Dream yeah, record, yeah. and, you know, like, stuff that is much more obscure when you compare it to the other stuff. Totally. And you're performing a lot more sporadically around this period Yeah, and well. also, like, writing songs, like, for commercials and doing all kinds of weird, like... Just different projects. Yeah. Know? Like being in LA, basically. And like yeah, of course. Being at home and just doing projects. Like, How did that kind of affect your mindset creatively? Like you said, you used to be the kind of person who could write a song a day. Like, was it still the same, just in a different context? Yeah, it's like, I'm sort of the same. Like, I, I like writing for projects. Yeah. So, even when I was starting out writing a song a day, it was for a project. Like, I was trying to build a career, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I still like to write when I have an album to write or when, like I don't really write just every day for, like I like to play guitar every day, yeah. but I just, I don't generally, I write in spurts when I'm like writing, you yeah. know, and it's all been like formative. Like it's yeah. all been kind of like at the moment I'm at now where I can like stand on a stage and play music that goes across like 30 years of writing yeah, and play the bits I like and don't play the bits I don't and mm-hmm. but mainly like engage the room and just be there for the audience and have an experience together. Like it's all part of that. That's been built over 
all of those years that includes periods of reflection, not just periods of going out and making and being mm. in public, yeah. but being at home and like playing guitar and thinking about songs and thinking about the kind of career I want and meeting different people and playing Largo a lot and like yeah, sure, just going down there once a week or once every couple of weeks and playing three songs at like, you know, Paul Shear's show or like yeah. Pete Holmes's show and just yeah. like thinking about performance in terms of I'm a human being that has something to communicate. What can I do with 10 minutes of stage time? Right. What can I do? And just like really like refining like what am I both publicly and privately? And some of that is going like, oh, okay, this thing, like me holding an acoustic guitar. Yeah. I like it and my audience likes it. Yeah. We can have diversions from that, but basically- Whatever that is, is the essence of what I have to do here, basically. You know, I can do other projects and all kinds of mm. creative things. But but finding just acceptance of that, for me, has taken a really long time, you know. Do you feel like your approach to performing changes uh, under the, the context that you're in? Like, going from playing somewhere, like here, playing to a couple of hundred people in a you know, small town, or, you know, playing a theatre, playing an arena, playing a stadium, you know, playing with band, playing by yourself, playing with a tape deck, you know, like you, over the years, you've yeah. played in all these different I mean, kind of ways and shapes and forms. Yeah, essentially, like, my job is to show up and be present. Right. Like, what I've realized is people that like my music, like, yes, they like certain songs, mm. but more than that, they kind of like me as a yeah. person, basically. Yeah, yeah. And if I show up and I'm myself and I'm present and I go, okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to be in a room together. Yeah. Let's do something. Here, I'm going to sing you some songs. Yeah. Like, yeah, they might be, oh, you didn't play my favorite, whatever. But if we've had a good time, they're pretty happy, mostly. Sure. And I kind of realized, like, it's simpler than I've made it a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, like you said, it's primarily been about you, but, you know, across the years you've played with other people. So, going from having Ben Folds and Ben Quiller on stage to bringing someone completely out of the world of music in with Josh Radner. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a bit about that dynamic and, and those performances because, like, that's still something people have, a, a gra- like, a difficult grasp even believing actually exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it just sort of, like, like anything, like, it just gathered its own steam. Like, we yeah. wrote a song. You know, people get together and write a song. Yeah. And then we wrote another one and another one. And then we had a few and it was like, should we, like, make an album? So, mm. we finished a band. And then we put it out and then we got an opportunity to tour in Brazil. Because, like, we did in Facebook. We started doing Facebook Lives and we got an audience. They were like, they're doing, if you I looked at the statistics, it was all Brazilians watching That's it. That's crazy. Because of How I Met Your Mother was really big. There. Right. So, then we went there and then we played pretty big shows and then that changed our music because our music was very lyrical before that. Mm. But then you're playing to essentially a non-English speaking audience. And we started getting a little more like groove based and right. like more like a little more psychedelic. And it became a little more like Grateful Dead kind of vibe in the music. Yeah. And, um, and then we came and made another record. You know, it's a, I mean that. And then the, the last album we made, A Golden State. I thought it was really good, but it came out right at the beginning of COVID. Right, yeah. The height of Black Lives Matter protests. And it was like, basically, it was like thrown into the ether. Like yeah. Nothing, you know. <laughs> but um, And now we live in different countries, you know. Sure, um, yeah. But yeah, it's like, to me, the most interesting things are the things you can't predict. Yeah, totally. You know? uh, I, and the dynamic there is super interesting as well, because you've got yourself who's been performing on stage for years and years and years uh, with someone who had, you know, I, I'm assuming had never really done any gigs like that prior to this Yeah, this but run. he'd been in musicals. So right, he'd sung yeah. on stage before, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, what was that dynamic like for you guys? I mean, honestly, I find um, bands and collaboration, like, like, I love it and I hate it. Yeah. Because, like, I'm too fickle. Like, I want to always change the plan. Yeah, yeah. Like, my, I, and that's why being a solo artist is kind of good for me. But I like, when I do get involved in these deeper collaborations, I like the challenge of stepping up to meet someone else where they are. Right. And not yeah, having yeah, total yeah. control, you know? So, it's 
Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, I like both. Yeah, absolutely. When you were over in LA, you, you mentioned you were doing Largo and you were part of these like variety nights and stuff like that. How did that kind of impact your writing, your performing? Because it's it's one thing to be part of like a, a, a bill of musicians on a show. It's another to be part of literal variety bill where it's just like, maybe it's going to be a musician, maybe it'll be a comedian, maybe it'll be a performance artist, you know, like it's this real kind of mixed bag, you you know? Well, you know what the biggest thing it did for me was um, I've spent a lot of my life actually looking for community from being 14 and being like, oh, I just want to meet the people on in the Half a Cow bands. Yeah, I yeah, just want to yeah. like, we're going to tour with in Melbourne and we're like, oh my God, these are musicians. It's so good. Like, yeah. and then, like just community in different ways has been a real savior for me, you know? Yeah. But it's also been me going like, who is my community? You know? Yeah. And a lot of my spiritual seeking was a lot about like community, like trying to find people with like, like minds or interests or whatever. But what Largo really did for me and being in LA was going like, I'm in fucking showbiz, man. Yeah. My community, my community are showbiz people. Yeah. And I think, there's a certain type of showbiz person that, yeah, they might be a comedian, they might be a percussionist, they might be a songwriter, they might be a juggler, but there's a certain type of person where, like, we're almost more like carnies. We like to entertain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, and so it's just, there's been a, like, really nice realization of that and acceptance of that in my life, you know? I think the other interesting thing is that at this point of your career, you're basically an intergenerational performer. Parents will take their kids to come and see you now. And those kids will have been, you know, might not have even been born when Catch My Disease oh, man. came like, out. Like, if I, like, hang out you know? with, like, Georgia Mack and yeah, she's, yeah, like, previous remembers, like, her dad putting my song on in the car or yeah. something. like. I don't know. I can't remember. Like, yeah. things like that, though. Like, experiences yeah, yeah, yeah. with, like, artists who I consider my peers, mm. you know, who are, like maybe 20 years younger than me and yeah. grew up on my music. But what you realize is that like none of that matters to yeah. like music is incredibly connective and authenticity is incredibly connective. Yeah. It's beautiful. I like that. Cause I don't really care that much about age either. You know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine it's kind of, it must be gratifying though to like have younger artists play with you or come up to you and stuff like that and, and share their experience of their music with you. Yeah. Well, I've always like related to like, you know, people like David Bowie who, part of their process was staying connected to what was new. Yeah, totally. And not in a way that's like mercenary, like Madonna or something. I, I don't maybe not Madonna, but like yeah. people who were like, find me the hottest young producer. Yeah, but yeah, kind yeah. Kind of yeah. going like, where's the, where's the cool shit happening? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know what I mean? Just that yeah. vibe of like- Totally. Of like wanting to like hear a new sound or wanting to hear a new yeah. turn of phrase and like, and it's fun. I just mm. find it fun. And so I think like if you're like that and you're you have a- passion and a hunger for new stuff you end up like also just wanting to meet new minds and young minds and connect and, absolutely and i meet like and because i sort of played a lot with people a generation above me yeah and those were like people who were a little more stuck in their ways as far as like indie versus mainstream and yeah. like like when i had like mandy moore sing on my record mm. that was for a certain type of fan that was more connected to the like sonic youth pavement world yeah. that was like a bit blasphemous yeah whereas yeah, yeah. like people like shamir and courtney and and um georgia mack and um phoebe bridges and mm. like people like that those those lines have all been blurred yeah that stuff doesn't even matter anymore totally like once you're in the spotify streaming world it's like do i like the sound of the song do i like the vibe yeah there's no tribalism at all yeah for sure was when i was growing up so i relate in a way to the next generation a little more than i Related to like the last generation in terms of that. Yeah, sure. The blurring of the lines. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're young, I feel like everyone has this very kind of idealistic impression of what it like being in a band and being a musician is actually like because we grow we grow up on like rock documentaries and biopics and all that yeah. sort of stuff you know and like there's always those moments in those stories where it's just like and this is where the band had made it quote unquote and it's this very like trite and idealistic view of like what it's actually like to be a musician and performer or songwriter etc but I feel like 
deep down, every musician, one way or another, has those little moments for themselves, whether that's getting to tour to a certain place, getting to play with a certain artist, getting acknowledged in a certain context or anything like that. When you look at what you've been able to do across your career, is there anything in particular that kind of sticks out to you in the sense that if you went back and told child you that them picking up a guitar would eventually lead to this... Like, they wouldn't believe you. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's like any of it. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not one thing. It's the idea that, like, I can walk up on a stage, even if I'm nervous, I'm not intimidated. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't yeah. matter who I'm playing with. Like, mm. my side of the street's clean. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been hard to imagine. When you're just starting out and everything's intimidating. Totally. And I think that just the cultivation of a sense of true confidence internally and humility that comes with, I know what I am and I know what I'm not. You know what I mean? Because when you're young, you want to be everything. Yeah. And as you get older, you realize that you can't be everything. But if you be yourself, you can have a pretty good run probably. You know Mm. what I mean? And so I think that's it. Probably I would just be like amazed that like I have gotten to a place as like a person in my early forties that knows I can go out and kick ass yeah. and feels confident about that. That's a great feeling. Oh, that's incredible. You know, through those years of performing and making music and stuff like that, do you feel like your motivation to continue to write and perform and, and, and continue to, to kind of be a, a musician in the present tense as opposed to, you know, like a lot of a lot of artists will just go out there and, you know, play the hits, quote-unquote, and just go on nostalgia tours and stuff like that. But whereas you've constantly been creating and making music and making new records and stuff like that, do you feel like your motivation to continue to be a contemporary musician, quote-unquote, is still the same as it was when you first started playing music and first started writing songs or do you feel like it's kind of shifted contextually as you've gotten older? I mean, it's kind of the same. It's like, I still just want to do what I think's cool. Yeah. And that has changed. What that is has changed over the years and has gone through different phases. But ultimately I want, I just want to carry myself with self-respect and dignity. And I know that like, if I, carry myself in a way that I like what I'm doing or I like my reasons for doing it, Yeah, I'll sleep well at night, you know? So, it's kind of, th- that's sort of pretty consistent. Yeah. Now, we're at a new point in your career, like uh, you have this new record on the way. Was this was this done pre-COVID? Like, is it all done? It's, yeah, I sort of made it, I've got like a, probably a week more work into it, but the label, we're still finalizing the contract, so they can't right. give me a release date oh, until true. there's like wet ink on the paper. Oh, yeah. And until I have a release date it's very hard for me to like tie up the loose ends because I'm like yeah. what's the point give me a date when it's due and I'll finish it up yeah, but yeah. basically I did it yeah sending stuff around back and forth during lockdown in LA you were saying before you're super excited about this record yeah I feel really good and it's like you know there's like a song I did with John Bryan who's someone I've wanted to work with for years and just all these things that came together for it that just feel like really good you know and it feels like it's like it's that mix of like, I think when I'm at my best, I have like both a type of like grounded, like relatability yeah, and a type of swagger yeah. and it's catchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Well, here's to feeling good all the time, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> okay. So, we'll wrap it up here. But yeah. before we do that, I ask this of all of my guests and now it is your turn, Ben. I want to know about the best and the worst shows that you've ever played. It's more like a feeling because the experience of a show being great is or bad is a totally subjective internal one. Mm-hmm. The worst shows, okay, I played a show a few weeks ago and right as we were coming out of all the COVID restrictions, yeah. shows were pretty weird. Like they were pretty hit and miss in Australia. Yeah. But there was like one show I did particular. I don't want to like embarrass the venue or whatever, but it's like I did one show up north that was like, it was the kind of one where you look around and you go like, is this really what my career has come to? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a certain feeling of like, I am going to, you're giving me nothing and I'm going to give you nothing. <laughs> oh, so, that's brutal. So, yeah, it was pretty rough. Honestly, the best shows have a lot to do with how I feel about how I'm singing. If it sounds, if I can hear everything 
then even if there's like no audience there, I can enjoy the beauty of singing like connected to the guitar and the melody and the chords and the way it's like, so <laughs> without being like too, like it's so nerdy to be like, it's the sound system. Yeah. But, <laughs> but basically a lot of it is about like literally about the making of music and how you yeah. feel about the music you're making. At Absolutely. That time. And over the years I've had plenty of, you know, I've had more shows that with average sound, mm. but there have been shows where I've just loved the sound of my voice on stage yeah. in real time. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. felt like I love what I'm making right now. And to me, that's what makes a show great, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ben, genuinely, this has been such an honor. Thank you so much for your Thank time, Thank you, man. Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm David James Young and all my friends are in Barbets. Thank you.